Uh, if we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Lulloyne. I have the privilege of, of getting to serve as the pastor uh, of this church, and so it's an honor again to be before you. I was gone for a couple weeks, then finally back last week. Uh, it just is a privilege to be with you, to open God's Word, to really seek to understand who God is, who we are in light of that, and we have that opportunity again today. Uh, and so if you have Bibles, or you're using your phone with the new Liberty app and want to switch over to a Bible app of some kind, you can open up uh, John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Annie mentioned under your seat, page 899 uh, is where that starts, and then you'll like flip over to page 900. Uh, in my neighborhood right now, uh, and if you live in Hamden Township like I do, you've probably experienced this as well, there's a lot of water main work going on. And so all around my neighborhood, uh, they're tearing up the road, and there's a lot of patchwork and potholes. And uh, more than one occasion, uh, they've snuck up on me in the past several weeks. I'm driving along. The road used to be smooth like yesterday, and now I run across this pothole, big bump, and kind of look back like, what was that? Okay, I probably need to be paying more attention when I'm driving. Well, to many, the, the line that we've arrived at in the Apostles' Creed today can feel a little bit like a pothole. Uh, the, the first two-thirds of the Apostles' Creed, and if you've been with us, we've been walking through this series for the past um, month and a half or so now. The first two-thirds of the Creed is pretty smooth sailing. Um, to be sure, we will wrestle with questions and doubts about creation, um, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Well, how does that cohere with science? Uh, how do I kind of put those pieces together in my mind? Uh, we'll probably have questions and doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. Is that a, a real historical event? Can we trust that? But I think for most of us, those things don't necessarily offend our modern sensibilities. Uh, they, they tend to create something more like intrigue or something like skepticism, not offense. But then, and maybe seemingly for you out of nowhere, we arrive at this line about Jesus' judgment. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And it feels kind of like we just hit that pothole you know, what was that? And someone else was like, well, don't even worry about that. Just keep going. We'll, we'll get to the resurrection of, of, of an, an everlasting life here in a, in a few weeks. But I want to spend some time really talking intentionally today about God's judgment. And God's judgment is one of these topics that Christians tend to do one of two things with. Uh, so some Christians, Christian groups, Christian churches, employ God's judgment as a tactic in their fear-mongering, which can be really effective can be really effective. You can leverage God's judgment to elicit a very powerful response from people. One example that comes to mind for me is that every year, right around Halloween, some churches or, or ministries or groups will host what's often referred to as a hell house. Is anyone familiar with these? Or if you're even brave enough to admit, yeah, I was part of, I've been part of those. Or uh, a hell house is essentially a haunted house. But instead of scaring people with ghosts or, or monsters or, or zombies or whatever, uh, they depict a few specific types of sin. Substance abuse, uh, different kinds of sexual sin, abortion. And it's always narrowed to those, those few kinds of sin. Right? It's never pride. It's never self-righteousness. It's never neglecting the poor. They show these sins, and then they show God's judgment against those sins. They, they have some kind of scene that depicts hell and God's judgment against those sins. And then the final scene is usually a picture of heaven. And there's an offer at the end of the, the hell house to uh, repent and to believe in Jesus. And as you might imagine, or maybe even some of you have gone through one of these before, uh, a lot of people are sufficiently freaked out that they will gladly 
repeat a short prayer to receive Christ or fill out some kind of commitment card or whatever the expected response is for that event. Regardless of what actually is going on in their, in their heart, regardless of what they actually believe, they're sufficiently freaked out to say, okay, I'll, yeah, okay, I'll probably say those words or I'll, I don't want that. I don't want what I just saw in that hell house. So that's one way that Christians handle the idea of God's judgment. Other Christians and other churches, not wanting to manipulate people through fear-mongering, which I think that's what largely those hell houses are, not wanting to do that, they go the complete opposite direction and really do away with God's judgment. So some actually adopt a, a theology that rejects the notion of God's judgment altogether. Uh, what's sometimes called universalism or inclusivism. We're saying, like, Jesus won't judge. He'll include everyone into his saving, his saving work. More commonly, and if I were to put money on it, this is where I think most of us in this room would err if we're going to err in this. It's not that we deny God's judgment as a theological truth. We believe it as a theological truth. We just downplay it so much that it's functionally non-existent. And if and when we do talk about it, We talk about it in an apologetic way. We apologize for the judgment of God. So honest question for you this morning. Have you ever apologized for the judgment of God? Or have you ever had an apologetic disposition as you've been in a conversation about this with someone? I have. I have done that. I get it. I get it. I've been in those conversations where someone's offense at the idea of a God who judges is so palpable, like it's thick in the room, and makes such an awkward kind of moment that I'm counting the seconds until I can redirect the conversation to something that's easier to stomach, like the love of God. But as someone who's done it, can I just be one to call that what it is this morning? To apologize for God's judgment is really to assume a posture of moral superiority over God, and it's actually to assassinate God's character in the process. I think about this. When do we apologize on someone else's behalf? When else do we do that in our lives? We do that when we're confident that they're wrong and that we're right. And we do that when we're confident that we sit in a position that's more enlightened than they are. So like with my kids, for example, when one of my daughters does something that's wrong, I might apologize on their behalf. And that's because I see that what they're doing is wrong, depending on where they're at developmentally and what we're talking about, they may or may not see that it's wrong. But I'm more mature than they are. I've got a better vantage point on that. And so I'll apologize on their behalf. But think about what that says, what that reveals about our view of God when we apologize on his behalf. It reveals that we think ourselves morally superior to God, more enlightened than God, and that he's somehow wrong in that, but we've actually got a better, more mature understanding, and so we're going to apologize on God's behalf. It really is a shot at his character, even if we're not intending to do that. Now, inside and outside the church, I think these are the predominant perceptions that exist about God's judgment. Either that God is this angry, vindictive, bully kind of judge, and that he can't wait to catch you in your sins so that he can condemn you to hell, or that God is too loving to judge, that because God is love, that that somehow does away with judgment altogether. And so what I want to consider this morning is, is that really, are those really our options? Is that really, we have to to choose between one of those or the other? Or is the actual picture 
that we're given in Scripture of God's judgment something different than that? Is there another way, a way in which we neither need to leverage God's judgment as a tactic in fear-mongering, nor downplay and apologize for it? And what we'll see in this text today is that in God's kingdom, there's no contradiction between the love of God and the judgment or the justice of God. They exist together. And so, would you with me now turn your hearts and your minds and your ears to this book that we love. I'm going to read from John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. You can follow along with me. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us and we'll continue on. God, we confess the limitedness of our understanding as we seek to put these things together. So we pray that you would give us the ears to hear this morning. And we pray that we would be those who, who not only learn intellectually, from your word, from what you have revealed, but we would be those who see our need for it and put ourselves under it and submit to you. That, that wherever we are prone to assume a posture of superiority over you or try to defend you somehow or, or, or apologize for something that we see in your character that's hard for us, pray that we would come underneath your word and learn from it and be submissive to it. We pray, Lord, with the psalmist that you would teach us your way that we might walk in your truth and that you might unite our hearts to revere your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the way, who is the truth, and the life. Amen. We'll spend the rest of our time really looking at two questions uh, this morning, and they're these. Uh, What kind of judge is Jesus? And then how should we live in light of Jesus' judgment? So first, what kind of judge is Jesus? And Jesus' words here, right? this is Jesus speaking in John chapter 12. His words speak of him as a judge. Verse 48 uh, specifically says this, The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now if you are familiar at all with the Bible, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, then you know that contrary to popular notion, Jesus isn't just some kind of spiritual guru that goes around like a a 2,000-year-ago Tony Robbins spouting off positive thinking kinds of comments and things like that. He says some really radical and really offensive things. There's always a purpose to them. Uh, It's always done in a way that that is loving and trying to navigate and get into the heart level of what his audience is experiencing. But he says some radical and offensive things. Here we have Jesus referencing himself as both the source and the basis of judgment. 
So he's the source of judgment in that he says that judgment comes from him. And more specifically, because his words are the very words of God the Father, they have the authority of God, judgment is going to come from his words. They're going to come, it's going to come from him. So on that last day, what Jesus says, when he comes again, he's going to bring judgment. So he's the source of it. He's also the basis of our judgment. The basis of judgment, the stick really by which we are measured, are, is also Jesus and his words. So we are judged, and we see this in this passage, based on whether or not we receive or do not receive Jesus. To understand Jesus as judge, I think one of the linchpins in understanding this, and not, not making some of the errors that we are otherwise prone to make, is to first understand our condition apart from Jesus. Jesus says in verse 46 that he has come into the world as light, so that what? So that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. Think about what he's saying when he says that. To remain in something means what? It means that you are already in it. You are already in it. And that is not the way that our society likes to think about the nature of humanity. Most, and I think this perception also exists both within the church and outside the church, most think that people are either generally good, and there's just a few bad apples that kind of exist among us, but most people are generally good, or that people are neutral. We start neutral, we have the decision whether or not we're going to go kind of the good road or the bad road. But Jesus here is saying something very different. He says that humanity is in darkness, He says that there is already, because humanity is in darkness, and and John's gospel especially talks a lot about the contrast of light and darkness and that the judgment comes because people in darkness experience the light of Jesus but choose the darkness instead. And Jesus is saying here, there's already a judgment coming because of the condition we find ourselves in. When we uh, welcome people into covenant, covenant membership at Liberty Church. We'll do that actually next week. We'll celebrate with many people coming into covenant next week. Uh, we ask people to affirm five vows. And the first one of those vows begins like this. And people will affirm this next week. They'll say, uh, we'll say, do you admit that in your own strength you are a slave to sin, resulting in degradation and God's judgment? Those are weighty words that we ask people to affirm. When we affirm that, uh, what we're saying is that by our nature and by our choices, we are sinners. And so left to ourselves, our condition is not one of being, uh, in, um, being good people or being neutral people, but really our condition is that we are enslaved to sin. And that sin is a big deal. It degrades us and others. It pollutes us and others. And then because sin is primarily an offense against a perfect and holy God, Right? We sing about this God every week, particularly in those first couple songs, and, and, and we look at this God in our call to worship. But because sin is primarily an offense against that God, we're subjected to his judgment against sin. Right? We're the ones that have rebelled against him. We're the ones responsible for the fracture and corruption of sin, both in our own hearts and in, and in our world. And so God holds us accountable to that sin. But that's not the end of the vow when we have people come into covenant, we go on to affirm this, and that our only hope is in God's mercy through the liberating work of Jesus Christ. And that's the other thing that Jesus says here in John 12. If you look at the second half of verse 47, it says this, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Does that that sound like a contradiction? I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What is Jesus trying to say there? 
Well, he's saying that because we were in darkness, enslaved to sin, he had no need to come into the world to judge the world. The judgment was already there. We were already judged. So Jesus could just have let things play out, and that judgment would have been enacted on the last day. But out of a deep love and compassion, right, and in his great mercy, Jesus came the first time when he didn't have to, except to save us. He came the first time not as a judge, but as a savior. So at the same time here in John 12, it establishes Jesus as the judge. His own words here destroy this notion that his judgment is some kind of detached, impersonal, vindictive work. This text begins with some really important words, and I think we can skip over them too quickly. Text begins in verse 44 with this. Jesus cried out. And that word, cried out, is the word in the original language for an impassioned plea. In other texts, that word is used in Scripture. There's a blind man on the road in Jericho, on the side of the road. Jesus is passing through, and it says that that man, with the same word, cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in another instance, the apostle Peter is walking on water to Jesus, and he begins to doubt, and he begins to sink into the water. And it says that Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Here it's not a blind man or an apostle crying out. It's Jesus crying out, Dear friends, believe. Believe this. He wants people, as he, and he comes into the world for exactly this purpose. He wants people to hear his words, to receive his words, to believe in him, to believe in the God who sent him. And as he says there, that God is the way to eternal life. In his words, in his commands, he holds eternal life. He wants people to trust in him and to flee the judgment that is coming. Now, I know this is, is complicated, and, and all of us have slightly different backgrounds. We've studied this maybe at varying degrees. It's complicated and difficult to comprehend that God's mercy is what rescues us from God's judgment. It's difficult to comprehend that Jesus is both Savior and Judge. But in Jesus' mind, in Jesus' words here, there's no contradiction between those things. And the Apostle Paul, similarly in Romans 3, picks up this very thing. There's no contradiction in his mind between these things. He says there that God is both a just judge and the merciful and loving justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I would submit to you that the errors that we make about this topic, they are always errors of reductionism. There are always errors of reductionism. In our difficulty to understand this, to put these things together, we emphasize one over the other, or we do away with one in favor of the other. And that's how we end up with these misconceptions about God, that he's like this vindictive bully judge, or that his love somehow makes him too loving to actually deal with sin. But, but we need a judge that actually deals with sin. We need a, a judge who deals with sin, but also for whom dealing with sin doesn't mean the end of us. As people who, who in, our, in the depths of our soul, know that we too are broken, that we too contribute to the pollution and the fracture because of the sin in us. So we need a God who judges sin, but we need a God who rescues us from that sin, and that's the judge we have in Jesus. All right, Jesus, what kind, this is the question we're after in this first part uh, of our time together. What kind of judge is Jesus? Well, he's the judge that is so committed to his creation and humanity specifically as the pinnacle of his creation. He's so jealous to redeem it 
that he will declare the sentence of punishment against sin. But then he will get up off of his judge's bench and take that punishment upon himself in our place. And that's what for us means that this judgment transforms completely from a terrible fear-inciting news to really the best news in the world. And if that's then the kind of judge that Jesus is, then that means there are going to be for us far better ways to live in light of that, to respond to that than, than, using, than using judgment as a tactic in fear-mongering or then apologizing for it and, and kind of minimizing it and kind of putting it away as much as we possibly can. So that's what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about. How should we live in light of Jesus' judgment? And there's many ways we could answer that question. I just want to talk about three responses, three ways to live in light of that. The first one's this. We fight injustice while entrusting perfect justice to God. Fight injustice while entrusting perfect justice to God. Honest question for you this morning. Are you overwhelmed by the brokenness and the injustice of the world yet? Are you overwhelmed yet by what you've seen on the news in the past couple weeks? Are you overwhelmed by what you've seen on the news for the past couple decades? The only way that we are not completely overwhelmed by what's going on in the world around us right now is that we have become so callous to human suffering that we've just kind of shut that part of our brain off. And I go there. We all, I think, go there at times. But how many, how much more does it, is it going to take for us to be completely over, overwhelmed by this and fed up and throw up our hands at this? Like, how many more unarmed black men need to die? How many more police officers need to get shot? How many, how many more car bombs or terrorist attacks or civil wars or displaced peoples need to exist in the world before we're woken up to this? How much more starvation or human trafficking or homelessness And then how much longer are we going to continue to trust the goodness of humanity just to figure all of it out? Right? That experiment has failed miserably over the past couple centuries, and yet we keep going back to that as the answer. The answer is never going to come from the inherent goodness of humanity because humanity is inherently broken. So apart from Jesus as judge, let's go hide out in a cave or let's go take justice into our own hands. Let's go vigilante on this because those are our best options. But if Jesus is judge, it frees us to fight against injustice while entrusting perfect, ultimate justice to him. It frees us to actually fight because as he says earlier in John 12, we didn't get to read it, but in verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So though judgment for us comes later on the last day, that's when Jesus judges us, judgment has already come for Satan. And what that means is that though his power rages on in this age and in this day, he cannot stop the spread of the kingdom of God. Satan is impotent to stop the spread of the kingdom of God. Jesus has judged him and defeated him, and therefore we are free to actually fight injustice, to push back what is dark and evil in the world, and we can do that right now. But as we fight... We entrust perfect final justice to God. We never take that into our own hands. God says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. We don't take justice into our own hands only because Jesus is judge. 
And I think our society has this completely backwards in many cases. We do away with God's judgment as kind of a concept. We kind of put it on the back burner or ignore it. And then we tell one another to follow this supposed example of God's non-judgment. And it works up to a point, doesn't it? It works up to a point, but it only works for people who have suffered relatively little at the hands of evil. And if our only answer is to follow this supposed example of a God who refuses to judge, once we are pushed across that line, we lose the whole thing. We'll take vengeance into our own hands, and we will never trust a God who is too impotent or too careless to do anything about sin. But because Jesus is judge, we entrust perfect justice to him. And I love how a man named Miroslav Volf puts this. He's a theologian at Yale University, but before he came to the States, he grew up in Croatia. And he grew up in Croatia amid the ethnic cleansing and all the horrors that were part of the Yugoslav wars. And Miroslav Volf says this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, he talks about nonviolence, um, non-vengeance, non-retaliation in this book that he writes. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will, not, will be unpopular with many in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. But it takes the quiet of a suburb, man, this is convicting for us, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. Because in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, that if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. It means so much more when it comes from him, does it not? Who grew up in the midst of that kind of experience. But praise God, Jesus is the judge and he comes again to judge the living and the dead. He comes and makes a final end to injustice and so we can fight injustice now but trust and trust perfect justice to him. A second way to live in light of this, to respond. Plead the mercy of God for you and for others. Plead the mercy of God for you and for others. The contradiction that you and I often live when it comes to Jesus' judgment is that we want it for the world. We want it against these places that we perceive injustice in the world. We want it for other people. We just don't want it for me. We want God to judge swiftly, harshly, just as long as he remains patient and merciful with me. But that's the double standard. That's the double standard that we often live in this. Not only is it a double standard, it actually is, to do that is to maximize the evil and the sin in in the heart of another human being or another group, and it's to minimize the evil and the sin within our own hearts. And I'm grateful here for how a Russian author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn honestly reflected on this very idea a couple decades ago. Um, Near the end of World War II, Solzhenitsyn was put in a Russian prison camp, labor camp, for eight years 
because he was writing, caught writing anti-Soviet propaganda. And while he was in this labor camp, uh, he experienced deep hatred, probably understandable, deep hatred for the people who put him there and for the guards that were over him there. But as he wrestled with his hatred, he had this profound realization. And he says this, If only there were people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Confronted with the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt stricken dumb. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. See, it wasn't some kind of inherent goodness in him that made the difference here. The difference was that his enemies had an opportunity to do him harm, and he didn't have that same opportunity to do harm to them. But given the chance, what he's wrestling with very honestly is that he would have done exactly the same thing to the people who are doing that to him now. And Christians, this is what you and I claim to believe when we plead the mercy of God for ourselves. When we, claim, when, we, when we claim to believe and we plead the mercy of God for ourselves, what we're saying is that it's not some kind of inherent goodness in me and evil people, quote-unquote, out there. Salvation is only and always about the mercy of God redeeming us from the righteous judgment of God. That's, what's, that's what we claim to believe. That's what we plead for ourselves. And so to consistently live in light of Jesus' judgment, we plead his mercy for others just in the same way that we plead it for, for myself, for ourselves. So another question for you to wrestle with today. What person or what group of people would it be easiest for you to see God bring judgment against? Who is that for you? Or what group is that for you? Is it, is it broad-minded liberal people? Is it narrow-minded conservative people? Is it cops who kill unarmed black men? Is it black men who kill cops? Is it people who commit a certain type of sin, whatever that sin might be? Is it Muslim terrorists? Is it just the person who's making your life miserable right now? What I want to say to you unequivocally is that you and I need more compassion and love for that person or that group of people than we presently have. You need more compassion, you need more mercy for that person or that group than you currently have. Why? Because whatever valid reasons you have to be angry and hurt and long for justice, Jesus had more reasons to bring his judgment against you. And whatever genuine evil exists in the heart of that man or that woman or those men or those women, the same evil exists in you apart from the redemptive work of Jesus. And yet, what do we see here in John 12? What is Jesus' response to you and me? He offers mercy. And the more that you and I value the judgment of Jesus and we see the need for it in the world, the more concurrently we're going to value his mercy toward us as we see our deep need for it. And then the more that we value his mercy toward us, the more compassion that will generate in us for others. So like Jesus in this text, may we cry out with these impassioned kind of pleas for others to believe and to receive the mercy of God. Entreat other people, plead with other people to receive God's mercy, to save them from the judgment that is coming just as you long to be saved from the judgment that is coming. 
Right? Our world needs so much less self-righteous finger-pointing about who's at fault about the issues of the world, so much more compassionate, empathetic pleading for one another to know the mercy of God. Third and finally, the last one I'll mention today, how do you live in light of Jesus as the judge? Cultivate a mercy-conscious celebration of the justice of God. Cultivate a mercy-conscious celebration of the justice of God. Right, the more that we see injustice in the world, and the more that we see humanity's answers to those injustices fall short time and time again, we will gain an increasing gratitude that not only will God's justice come, but that also God's mercy is available to all who will believe in Jesus. And that really is the key. That is the remedy to these dual errors of either using God's judgment as a manipulative, fear-mongering tool on the one hand, or downplaying and apologizing for it on the other. As we grow increasingly aware of the mercy that we are shown by Jesus the judge, and as we plead with others to believe in Jesus, to experience that same mercy, that's how we can come to actually celebrate the justice of God in a genuine, authentic way that is not self-righteous or condemnatory. It's a celebration of the justice of God, but it is a mercy-conscious celebration. Judgment is not meant to be merely this scare tactic, at least from us in a self-righteous way, right? It's meant to point to the same mercy that I'm dependent on. That's what judgment's meant to do. And judgment isn't something for me to apologize for either because it's what I believe, it's what we believe as Christians that the world really needs. We need God to judge sin, so we can't say out of one side of our mouth that we are, that we are so uh, grateful that Jesus will come again, that he will put an end to all injustice and sin, while we say out of the other side of our mouth that we don't want God to judge. So friends, if I can leave you with this, don't apologize for the justice or judgment of God. Instead, instead live and speak and serve as one who desperately needs both the justice and the mercy of God to prevail. Right? Cultivate this mercy-conscious celebration of the justice of God. And that way, when we recite from this creed together that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, our hearts, our minds, our mouths will be able to resound. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this, this is a weighty subject, and we confess that we will struggle till the day we die to make these things cohere in our limited understanding. But we want to be those who submit ourselves to you and who follow what you have revealed about yourself. And so we desperately long, Jesus, for you to not only teach us the intellectual truth and realities of these things, but impress them upon us at our soul level. That we would that we would see and, and long for and celebrate that you're a God who does not let the world run amuck in sin forever, that you come to judge. But that that's only good news for us because you are simultaneously merciful and you offer us your mercy. And Jesus, you came to, to plead with us to believe and to receive your mercy. Stir that beautiful yet difficult truth in our hearts as we come to this table a table that is a perfect picture of both your justice and your mercy. This is the cost of sin, and this is the great love and mercy which you've shown us to pay that sin, pay the penalty of that sin on our behalf. 
you are a gracious and good judge. May we celebrate and honor you as judge. We pray that in your name. Amen.